I always tell my clients, I want your site to be the stickiest place on earth, right? Your site needs to be the special place. And so if I can make your site the special place, then it's just a matter of pulling all the levers I can to get them to your site. But once they're there, I know they're in a special place, they're safe. And if they're safe in that special place, they're eventually going to find the stuff you do. They're going to find the stuff you sell, the services you offer. So organic social is a lever, email is a lever, paid social is a lever, Google's a lever, PR is a lever. Welcome to the Grounded Content Podcast, where advertising, marketing, and content get real. I talk with the brightest minds in the business about tactics, strategy, ethics, and philosophy. Today, we cut through the BS with content strategist Bill Phillips. So, Bill Phillips, thanks for joining me on Grounded Content today. It's still one of the early episodes, so I appreciate your being gracious and coming on the show to talk about content. So I think you call yourself now a content strategist, but your background is in the world of magazines. Can you tell me a little bit about your background and you know what you've done before this? Yeah, sure. Uh, nice to be here, Marianne. It's great to see you again, and congrats on the new podcast. Um, so my background, I came out of the consumer magazine space. So early in my career, I spent a couple years at Popular Mechanics. I spent six or seven years at Popular Science. But I spent the bulk of my career at Men's Health Magazine. Started there as a senior editor and kind of worked my way up. In 2009, I took over the digital property as well, like served as editor of menshealth.com. And then a few years later, took over as the global editor-in-chief of Men's Health and did that for four years. And, you know, it was a tremendous ride. I learned a lot. Men's Health, for me, honestly, you know, coming from popular science, I took that job really to kind of get some experience in the general men's market. I always aspired to work at a place like Esquire or GQ. So I took that job thinking that it would be a stepping stone to one of those titles. But what I found when I got there was that it was like a stepping stone to a better life because really everything in that magazine spoke to me as a young man. You know, not so young, I guess, by the time I left there, but everything did speak to me and truly did help me become a better man. And so um, there was always a new challenge. I wrote a book as well called The Better Man Project while I was there. And, um, you know, no complaints at all. Fantastic ride. But interestingly, in 2015, I'd say I was in my office. Again, I was the global editor in chief running the biggest men's magazine brand on the planet. And I was reading an industry story like Ad Age or Ad Week or something like that. And somebody said, and I don't know who it was, but somebody's quoted as saying, when Burberry has 50 million Facebook fans, why do they need Vogue? And that quote really, really resonated with me because, you know, here I was leading this brand and, you know, reaching 25 million men a month and advertisers clamoring to be in our pages to help reach that audience. But what I realized in that moment was that ultimately I was just a middleman, right? So eventually... Any brand could build that audience on their own with all the digital tools available to them. And so there was no need for them to reach my readers when they could have their own readers. So I would say that my second act really kind of began that day when I thought, you know what, like these skills I have, my ability to connect with other people and inform them, surprise them, delight them, educate them, empower them, make them laugh, make them cry. That ability would really be able to serve me any, in any uh, endeavor that I, I wanted to pursue next working for any brand. And so, you know, 2016, I left Men's Health and I started a consultant company where I did just that. I started working with companies that really wanted to build an audience for themselves. But, you know, the difference was instead of just serving up content to serve up content, you know, or to educate and inform readers, but also give a place for Apple's advertising to sit, right? I started working with companies that really had like a product or service to sell. 
And so my approach in helping these companies is what I refer to as service journalism as content marketing, right? So service journalism is the type of journalism that built some of the biggest media brands in the world. So explain to the audience what service journalism means. Yeah, service journalism is, um, you know, as the name suggests, it's about putting the reader in the center of everything and serving him or her. And what that means is understanding how they think. Somebody once asked me, like, what my zone of genius is. And I said that it's not that I can edit and write well, it's that I can be the reader, right? And so today I have a role as the chief content officer at Linkwell Health. Linkwell Health is a company that works with health plans and health services companies around the world, delivering great health and wellness content to their readers or their members or their clients or prospects. And, you know, I might in the morning be writing or editing a story that's meant for a 72-year-old woman with hip pain. And so I have to like kind of be that person. I have to be that 72-year-old woman with hip pain. And I have to understand like what she's thinking, you know, what she's fearful of, the fact that there's COVID's going on. She can't go to the gym. She hasn't seen her friends and her kids won't come to visit her because they don't feel safe. She's not sure how to get food here because like she's got to do some sort of online shopping, but that's confusing. But then in the next moment, I might be working with a client and the ultimate reader is a 24-year-old you know, young man with depression. I have to kind of understand what he's thinking. So service journalism is being that reader, understanding that reader, and then serving them solutions to life's problems, to giving them content, stories that sort of understand what they know and what they don't know, what they're, what they're worried about, what their problems are, and then gives them actionable advice, practical advice on how to improve their lives today. So that's the service. The service is try this today. And one of my mentors always said, the sole job of an editor or writer is to get the reader to say, holy shit, I didn't know that. I got to try it. And if you can do that, you've done a good job. And so that's what service journalism is. And that's what I do for all the clients I work with now. So I'm thinking about this when you talk about this 84-year-old woman who needs a hip replacement. Was she 84 or 70? She was 74, but you, oh, know, 74. you, can, okay. you can age her up a little bit if you'd like. So <laughs> how do you, I mean, there's the empathy element, but do you do research to get into her head? You absolutely do research. The research is it's kind of an interesting thing because most clients I work with, they do personas and that sort of thing, like sort of that classic consumer research. But here's the thing. The real research is, is in trying stuff, like giving them something every day that you think they might like and then seeing how they respond. And, and that's the other part of what I do is that, you know, so much of the content distribution strategy starts on social channels, whether it's paid or organic or an email. And you just get immediate feedback on what resonates with your audience. And then, you know, you double down on the winners and you learn from the losers and you move on. I don't want to say I'm not a fan of the persona research. Um, I think it can, it often misleads brands. Tell me, explain that. Well, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, so say I'll talk about a, a client, the client with the 74-year-old that you turned 84. So that client, they're a client of Linkable Health, fantastic partnership. It's a brand called Silver Sneakers. So Silver Sneakers is a fitness benefit for senior citizens. And so Silver Sneakers like, wants to empower senior citizens to go to the gym, get a good workout, meet some friends, go out to lunch after, that sort of thing. Obviously, in the world of COVID right now, it's a little bit tough. So they're doing a lot of virtual stuff. But ultimately, they want to get seniors to be active and stay fit. And if they stay fit, they'll stay healthy. So here's a way persona research might mislead a person. Like, I can tell you right now that you know, uh, in a pre-COVID world, a lot of people would join a YMCA or join a gym after they've lost their life partner after they've lost a spouse, right? Because they're lonely and they want to meet people. And where can you meet people? Well, I have this benefit called Silver Stinkers. Like, let me check this out. And then like, you know, and then you go and you meet some friends and, and you're loved, right? So the persona is the widower. Now, 
a lot of brands, and Silver Sneakers isn't one of them, but a lot of brands might look at the widower and say, oh, well, the widower is one of our personas. We better serve them up some content about grieving. And that would be a mistake for a brand like Silver Sneakers because they're a fitness brand. The person is going to experience the brand because it offers a health and fitness benefit, not to get help with their life cycle of their grief. And so that's what happens a lot of times is that people like take these personas and they think about the person, but they don't think about how that person wants to relate to the brand. And that's like, you know, equally important. So one of the reasons I thought of having you on the show was this article or a, a post you wrote in LinkedIn. And you were talking about how your magazine background made you uniquely qualified. Is this something you learned in the magazine world? What, what does the magazine world teach you? Because there, that feedback was a slower cycle, right? So the magazine world, and I'm going to group in, you know, magazine, digital media, consumer magazines, and all the media that is kind of emanates from those brands. You know, what you learn when you're a magazine editor is, first of all, if you're in a service magazine, everything's based on science and research. Everything is based on primary sourcing, right? So um, you would never find anything in men's health that wasn't a peer-reviewed study. You would never find anything in men's health that was like, you know, so-and-so told, you know, the New York Times, right? Everything is, everybody's the primary source that we spoke to. So there's a commitment to like factual and scientific excellence that you learn as a young editor at those brands. So that's A. B is, you know, magazines especially have a very finite space, right? You know, everything uh, has to be cut to its essence to get across the message that you're trying to serve to the reader. And as a result of that, you learn like just how to write like with like clarity and brevity and directness. If you look at the best magazines that were always the best at selling magazines on the cover, you'll notice two things about their covers, right? One is you, you'll notice the word you and your all over the place because those are two words that pull people closer. And you'll also notice a lot of lines, phrases, sentences start with imperative verbs, like get fit, because you start with the action, right? That's another way to sort of bring people closer is like give them the action. You just learn sort of the psychology of how readers respond to certain types of messaging. And so something that I see often is, uh, well, we used to say that the reader has to be able to see the benefit, right, in the word. So and this is another, like, it's a magazine skill that just so many like content marketers don't get. So an example of that would be like, you know, I could say like a weight loss plan for 40 year old men, like that could be my headline. Or I could say, you know, uh, looser jeans for life, you know, drop one belt buckle like in, in five days or whatever. Like I can see and I can feel those words. I can't feel a weight loss plan. I can't see a weight loss plan. I don't know what the benefit of that is to me. And so you learn like this uh, commitment to excellence because staffs at magazines and, 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 you know, I'm sure there's plenty of other media brands that I'm speaking for magazines because that's my experience. They're staffed with like the most excellent wordsmiths you've ever met. And because their org structures have always been sort of laddered, the junior editors learn from the senior editors who learn from the executives who learn from the editor in chief. Like it was, you know, 20 years of a master's education working with some of the best people, you know, and, and you think you're so good in, in that industry. I can relate to the, so many times where I thought I was like, you know, I, I figured it out. I was like the best I could be. And then I would meet somebody who was just so much better than me. And the learning would begin again. And at every part of my career, you just meet like these brilliant people who can take, you know, 20 words, turn them into eight that are more impactful than the 20 that you wrote. Like that's the true gift of people who've been through that experience. And service journalism is the language of brands. Brands just don't realize it yet. So is that skill that what you said, the gift, is that, um, is that like just years of experience? 
It's years of experience. Yeah. I mean, you know, some writers are just naturally gifted. Like, of course they are, right? Like we shouldn't pretend that anybody can learn to be a brilliant writer. This is not true. But when you have like a natural gift, then you have the experience of seeing people respond to your feedback, whether it's your audience or the people you work with, being mentored by people who've been around longer than you. You know, when I was running the, the website at Men's Health, I could see you know, every headline on the website had five different options. You could see exactly in real time how readers are responding. And again, like one word can make all the difference. Like I'll give you another example here. Um, I can remember we had a story. This was back when I was at Men's Health. It was like on the homepage. And it was a story about... I'm trying to remember exactly like the, the context of it. There was some context where it was like, it was like, um, it's fall, it was getting colder, it was rainy, whatever it was. And people didn't want to go running or like weren't running far because it was allergy season. I forget, something like that. But anyway, we had a story that was called, you know, three outdoor workouts that are better than running. And, you know, that seems like a perfectly reasonable story, right? And it was doing fine. But then like in the tool that we had, we could test other headlines. So I put... A bunch of different headlines in and then i got to the last like i had like five spots and i got to the last spot and i wasn't sure what to write so i just wrote three workouts that are better than running that headline blew away the original by like it's like triple do you, you don't remember what the original was well the original headline was three outdoor workouts that were better than so just the word outdoor i removed the word outdoor and so you think like why well because the word outdoor limits it a little bit right like it's like do I want to work out outdoors? Like, what would I do outdoors? Would I have to bring my weights outdoors? Like, what Like, what are we even talking about? Like, you know what I mean? It creates like this little bit of like friction where the reader can't quite understand what you mean. And the second you make a reader think, they're gone. You know, whether you're in print back in the day and digital now, no matter what platform you're working on, what client I'm working on, we're trying to catch the attention of a blind person on a galloping horse. Nobody, nobody wants another damn story to read. Nobody wants to watch your videos. Sorry, people need to like kind of get over that. Nothing goes viral. Like you have to make it so good that they can't resist. And that doesn't mean clickbait because that may work. They may get, you may get to click, but you're not going to get, you know, four minutes time on site. Like, you know, I was looking at some metrics this morning and with one of my clients, we're averaging about four minutes on site. And I was like, that's pretty good. Average is like under two. I have a client with a story that it's averaging like 18 and a half minutes time on site. And guess what? That means they're reading the whole thing. Like, you know what I mean? Like they're truly engaging in that piece of content. You know, world-class journalism has never let me down. World-class content, high quality has never not worked in my career. So to dig into that, just from like a business point of view, right? If it's 18 minutes on site, how does that benefit, you know, your client? So let's talk about service journalism in terms of content marketing, what that what does that mean? Okay, so right now I'm working with a health plan in Puerto Rico. I don't know Spanish. <laughs> Luckily, I have a partner who really understands Spanish and is assigning and translating. But we're, we're creating Spanish language stories to be served up to this audience in Puerto Rico. The audience is um, a Medicare audience, which means that they are 65 plus. So it's an older Puerto Rican audience. A little known fact, when you turn 65, which I know you're not even close, but when you turn 65... You can pretty much buy your Medicare plan from whoever you want to buy it from, right? That It is the consumerism in healthcare that the Affordable Care Act was supposed to bring to all of us. You know, when you reach Medicare age, you truly can sort of like shop around and find your best plan. So it's really competitive. Like, so if you're in a market with multiple plans, like they're fighting for every customer because it's a high dollar lifetime value on every customer. You know, this is the time of year where they can sign up new members. So this plan uh, wants people to pick that. There's two other competitors in the Puerto Rican market. They want to be the one that, that people go with. So we created 20 stories. You know, there's some of them are general fitness, some of them are general wellness, 
some general health. There's also a little bit of Medicare education there. And we put these stories on their website, like on their blog or, you know, any sort of like content destination on their site. But these are works of journalism. Again, like there's nothing about the brand in these stories. They're researched, there's studies are cited, we've talked to experts. So we wrote pieces of journalism. But then we've linked them up with various calls to action, right? So calls to action are uh, looking for a Medicare plan, click over and learn why we're the best in Puerto Rico. Another call to action might be, uh, we cover more prescription drugs than any Medicare plan in, in Puerto Rico. Look at our list. You know, like, so it's CTAs like that. So that content gives us a reason to drive hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people to that site, because I can put that content into both organic social and paid social, and especially paid social and especially paid Facebook, which is still, for better or worse, the most cost-effective way to drive traffic to a website. So I can put $100 against one of those stories and drive, you know, 2,000 people and actually more because the CPCs, there are so low, you know, for, so for $10,000, I can drive 500,000 people or more to that website. Show me an, an advertising investment anywhere where you can put 500,000 people on your website for $10,000. It doesn't exist. People paid $150,000 to advertise in men's health. 500 people weren't going to your website, much less 500,000, right? So because this is really great journalism, because the headlines are really compelling, the copy in the Facebook paid post is really compelling, people click and over at like a two cent CPC, they get there, they read the story because it's not crap. It's actually telling them something they don't know. They're actually learning something. They're actually getting excited about what they're reading. They're reading to the end. And then along the way, there's a couple boxes that are uh, some CTAs. And so, you know, they're building an affinity with the brand, first of all, because the brand is giving them information that actually matters. I feel like that's the part that uh, that so many people are missing, right? The, the people that say like, okay, I get that whole story that you just told, but I could do like 50 crappy little articles and I can drive a ton of traffic from Facebook, paid social, and like there'll be even more. No, yeah, it, it's it's such folly. I mean, like I'd rather have ten amazing stories than a hundred okay ones because I have stories with some of my clients where, like, you know, I've been driving incredible traffic, less than five cents a click for three years because they're that good, and I can I can continue reaching new audiences. You can't do that with like you know, like when I, I've had people call me and they'll be like. Um, we have an SEO project. And I was like, well, if your SEO project isn't making amazing content, then you're doing it all wrong. Because people will be like, well, I want 50 stories written about barstools for this commerce site. And I'm like, I'm not the guy for that, right? Like, I'm just not. Like, that might work for you, but that's not how you build brands. And I'm interested in building brands. I'm interested in, you know, as we discussed earlier, like building that audience, deeply engaging them, like becoming an incredible, trustworthy source for them, having that relationship with them serving them along that customer journey. Like that customer journey might start with awareness coming into their site. And the next seven steps might be more awareness. But I tell you what, if they've come to the site seven times to read the content I've created, I guarantee you they're thinking positively about the brand and they're going to consider the brand when it comes to buying whatever product or service the brand is selling. I guarantee it. Give, you know, 50 crappy stories, like 500 word stories that are just optimized for SEO and that drive people really, it doesn't have any impact. So let's talk about that. So there's obviously the benefit from the brand point of view, because there's not just driving traffic. There's also the positive, the way that these articles represent the brand. But let's talk a little bit about this idea. You come from a journalism background, and I would guess that the percentage of content on the internet available that's being promoted in most people's feeds that actually comes from journalists at this point is very small. 
And most of those writers were not trained in those kinds of rules. I mean, what do you think about the importance of, you know, for example, I mean, just a simple thing. Okay. So, um, you know, a lot of people think that content marketing is, um, I'm trying to think of an example that won't offend anyone, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you know, you're selling dog collars. And so that means you write a bunch of articles like how to pick the best dog collar, why a waterproof dog collar is best for you, you know, and often misleading, often maybe not lying, but leaving out important facts. Um, I, I mean, from a business point, there, there's the ethical question and there's also the business question. How do you think about those things? Well, you know, let's take them one at a time. I mean, first of all, the attack on real journalism that's happening in this country is almost criminal. I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, like to see politicians attack outlets like the New York Times, Washington Post, it's like, please, like, those are some of the most honorable people I've ever met. You know, I um, had the pleasure of knowing some of the news commentators that are on the air now at CNN. This, they, I've worked with them in the past, and they are just truly the best people that I know, some of the best people that I know. So everybody wants to think that people have their own agenda. And the reality is, you know, some do, some don't. And us as humans aren't great at knowing the difference. <laughs> um, I don't have a solution for that. I can't fix the public discourse around journalism. You know, I wish I could. All I can say is that the outlets that serve before they sell are the ones that I think have the most authentic relationships with their audience and their customers. And they'll be the ones that sustain. I mean, I think, you know, it's tempting to see what's happening in our world and think, oh my God, it's all going to hell. It'll never be the same. You know, it's a blip. I mean, we'll get through all this. And at some point, there will be a flight to quality among reasonable people. Um, That's A. B, I think, like, listen, if you're selling waterproof dog collars, I think it's important that people know why waterproof dog collars are important. So there's absolutely content that can educate them around waterproof dog collars, you know, and there's content around why it's important to make sure your dog has a collar. And, you know, but there's always a way for brands to sort of celebrate the industry or the category it's in with content that just pushes people a little bit beyond product specs, you know? Well, I think about it this way, right? Like it used to be all about building your email list. But actually with retargeting and stuff, if you can bring people into your site for any purpose that are in your general interest pool, it's going to be beneficial, right? Yeah, 100%. I mean, email, like, believe it or not, is still like really important. And it's important for a few reasons. One is every client I have, every client at Linkwell Health that has a regularly like, you know, updated, pruned email list sees the best commerce results from email compared to like any other type of thing that they might be doing, including, you know, either direct response advertising or content marketing. Like, like email is an incredible tool to keep the conversation going. So, you know, my approach actually is when I have stories that are killing it on like, say, organic social, like I'm making sure they're in an email like the following week, because if they're going to kill an organic social, they're probably going to kill an email too. And as important or even more important is for SEO, email is super valuable because you know, if you have a story that is performing on organic social and it's performing on paid social, now it's performing on email. Those are three different sources of traffic. And Google's like, oh, like something cool is happening there. Like a lot of people from different sources are coming in and reading this piece. If it's just organic social or just paid social or just email, it's not nearly as authoritative in Google's eyes. So email as a traffic driving source, I think is important. Where I think people get it wrong is they use email as like their chief marketing tool. And I think that is where they fry their audience, right? 
So, you know, in my perfect world, and like, luckily, I don't own a business where I have to sell a bunch of stuff. Um, like, you know, but in my perfect world, email would be primarily editorial in nature. And I would let the site sell. And then I would retarget with direct response advertising. Um, people who opened the email and read, people came to the site and read, but didn't buy. And would your email be like, finish the article, go to the website to finish the article? Or would you put the full content in the email? No, I, all the email I do is teasing the article and getting people to click. Like everything is about getting the click. Um, you know, and there's great examples of folks who have emails that like to put it all there and it's really engaging. People look forward to it. And that's a model too. But I always tell my clients, I want your site to be the stickiest place on earth, right? Your site needs to be the special place. And so if I can make your site the special place, then it's just a matter of pulling all the levers I can to get them to your site. But once they're there, I know they're in a special place. They're safe. And if they're safe in that special place, they're eventually going to find the stuff you do. They're going to find the stuff you sell, the services you offer. So organic social is a lever. Email is a lever. Paid social is a lever. Google's a lever. PR is a lever. You know, other types of advertising is a lever. Syndication is a lever. You got to pull all those levers to get people into the site, which is the special thing. But then it has to be worth it when they get there. It has to be worth it. Yeah. If it's not worth it, then you're wasting all your time and money and like, you know, what you're creating is a very transactional relationship with your potential client or, or consumer, which if that's what you want, go for it. But long term, I mean, like content marketing is meant to be a way to build a brand and a way to fill your funnel, right? You got to build the pond to stock the pond before you can fish the pond. But, you know, you can let the fish swim for a long time before you start like trying to pull them out. And if you do that, you know, you're going to win because they're going to really, really trust your brand and trust you. And I think ultimately, right, like... We have such a culture of mistrust now that, you know, a brand that actually you do connect with and you do trust, it's like, you can almost like take a deep breath and just like be like, okay, like, at least I have this. So we're kind of getting near the end here, Bill. This has been a ton of good information. I want to talk a little bit more. You were saying everything you do in email and these other levers, you're driving people to this special place. What are some of the techniques that you use to get people there in terms of developing like the headline or how much you give? So ultimately, you're developing a relationship with your reader and your customer, right? So we talk about service journalism. We talk about being the reader, understanding how they think, what they're feeling, you know, what they're worried about, what they're hopeful about. And so it starts there. It's really having that connection. And then, you know, speaking to them as a peer, not a customer. I tell everybody I work with, all the writers I work with, you never want to talk down to your reader. You never want to think you know more than your reader. Because I tell you what, the second you think you know more than your reader is the second you'll lose them because they know exactly what you know. You have to assume that. And you know, in, in service journalism, where you're providing them answers, you're giving them tips, ways to improve their lives, it's got to be practical, right? So if I wouldn't do it, how can I expect somebody else to do it? If I have heard it before, I have to assume they've already heard it before and, and either have tried it or not tried it. So really, it's about like talking to somebody like you would talk to them at a restaurant or bar, you know, talking to them how you would email a friend to let them know about something you're really excited about. You know, so once you have that tone and, and that voice and it's practical and positive and persuasive, you know, again, like things like the word you. Like I used to walk the wall where before we sent an issue of men's health out to the printer. In all the headlines and decks, which is a copyright under a headline, I'd look for the words you and your. And if I wasn't seeing enough of them, I would like ask the team to start rewriting the heads in the deck. So the word you and your, you know, very strong verbs that pull people right in. You know, one of the hallmarks of the work I do across digital channels is, you know, it's very chunky. I mentioned earlier, you know, I'm, I'm trying to capture the attention of a blind person on a galloping horse. Well, if they're reading a story, they click in from a Facebook ad 
and they're standing in line at Rite Aid and they're starting to skim my story, if they just see gray blobs and, and they're not reading closely, they're going to click back out. So like chunks, like like subheads and little bits of bold or a towel or pull posts, like that type of stuff is like really, really important. You know, clarity over cleverness always is better, right? If you can be clear and clever, that is fantastic. But if you can only be one, it better be clear. Because like I say all the time, if the second somebody has to stop and think, the second they're not crystal clear on what your intention is, what you mean, they're not going to stick around to figure it out, right? So yeah, and then like just this element of surprise, right? So a lot of times, like a lot of people who do uh, to do like editorial newsletters or or even like social posts, they'll make a classic mistake where like you don't want to like bait somebody, but you also don't want to give away the story. But I see it all the time. It's, it's always hilarious because it'll be like an ad, say, for a, a content post. It'll be like the one food that can, you know, save your heart. Right. And then like the picture is cranberry. It's just like, well, you just gave me, a, you just told me what it was. Like, why would I click? Right. So you have to lead them without misleading them. And if you can find that balance, then they'll come with you. They'll come with you. They will trust you. And then, you know, deliver when they get there. It's got to be great stuff. It's got to be world class. So are there specific words that work? Like Joe Polish, one of his examples is this headline that's instead of don't make these three mistakes, he says three avoidable surprises or something like that. It just makes the people feel better because they're not mistakes, they're surprises and they're not, you know, they it, <laughs> and they perform better. Like, how do you feel about that level of language? Hey, I think it partly depends on the audience because every audience has like certain buzzwords that will always sort of resonate more than others. That's it. Um, B, I do think it's always like better if you can like zag a little bit when people expect you to zig. And there's wordplay that is still clear and a little clever that will get people to click. An example I can think of is, you know, it was a story about relationships and if your spouse was happy with you in their marriage and like ways to tell. The headline could have been like three ways to tell if your wife is still in love with you. But we went with simply, is your wife happily married? And this was at Men's Health. And so you know, there's a little bit of like, a, is your, well, what? Is my wife happily married? Like, you have to stop and, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then, you know, recently, um, I can remember I changed a subject line in a story. And again, it was a relationship story. And the story itself was about like fights couples should have. And the original subject line was, and I forget the exact specific number, but it was sort of just like, you know, three phrases that will start a fight or something like that. And I just added at the end of that, in parenthetical, but only if you do it right. So just getting at the like, wait, three phrases will sort of fight that oh, if I'm doing it right. So this is clearly that gives the story another dimension. And it's only it adds a few words to the subject line and like any of those sort of zigs that you can do. Yeah, I guess that brings me to this like follow up question, which is like, well, there's always this question, um, should you write the headline to be eye catching? Or should you write the headline to be SEO friendly? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Because I think they're one and the same. Because I think that... Really? Well, I do. I think that, um, as I said, clarity is essential. Cleverness is optional. So if I can write with clarity, I've covered SEO and I've covered off on, on serving my reader, something that they'll understand. But then if I can add a layer of cleverness on top of it, then I've really hit a home run because now my reader is delighted by the thought that went into it, but I still covered off on the SEO aspect. 
So I'm, I'm like, I'm thinking about that article, right? Just in, for example, so the article headline is about three ways to, you know, three phrases that will start a fight. I'm assuming that people would not be searching for how to start a fight, right? They're searching for like how to save their relationship or like, I don't know. I feel like SEO friendly headlines have like the names or the topic or are sort of more dull and straightforward. Well, in that case, the actual story headline versus the newsletter headline, something around like the hard conversations couples must have to help their marriage. And so like, you know, that I think is a more searchable subject. People who are struggling and they really might be thinking about how to start a conversation to start to fix it, you know? Right, right. Well, this has been really great and a ton of good information, Bill. I'm glad I saw your LinkedIn post and reached out. Is there anything else you feel like people should know that they get wrong? about this whole subject? Um, You know, just trust the process, right? I mean, building a brand is never going to happen overnight. And it cracks me up that people think that content should solve their problems overnight. It doesn't work that way. You know, you don't become best friends with somebody the day you meet them. Like you have shared experiences over time and you have deep conversations and you have funny conversations and you laugh and you fight and you cry together. And brands need to have those experiences with their customers before they build that loyalty. And that's okay. And, you know, a brand ultimately is a mirror, right? I want to be able to look at the brand and see myself staring back at me. And until that happens, I'm not going to feel complete affinity for it. It just takes time. Trust the process. You know, content, like true content will move the needle for the brand and give it a voice and drive the business forward and make it an authority in the space they're in. You know, it's not quick. It's not always cheap, but it does work when you do it right. That's great. That's my close. You closed it perfectly. (laughs) My first episode, I actually, I got to this point and I said to Chris Brogan, I'm like, how do I, how do I close this? I said, I just realized because he was my first interview and I'd gotten all the way through, you know, and then all of a sudden I was like, you know, treading water, like, oh God, what do I do? And, uh, (laughs) and he said, you know what I do is I just do like, um, what is it? The Irish exit? Is that what it's called? Yeah. 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 So Bill, like if there's one essential thing that would change the way people think about content marketing, what would that be? Oh, that's a great question. Um, Well, listen, like, you know, pay attention to this because this is truly, you know, the the thing that could change the directory of the brand. The, The one thing you never want to forget is... Thanks for listening to episode five of the Grounded Content Podcast with our guest, Bill Phillips. And thank you to Chris Zarnock for editing this episode. The show is still pretty new, and I'd love to hear what you think, what's working, what's not, what else you'd like to hear. So if you have a minute, stop by madmotion.com slash grounded podcast. Or if it's easier, find me on Instagram or Twitter at madmotion and drop me a line. Thanks for listening. Really, I appreciate you.